All right, with that, let's dive into today's message. I, if you're new to, the, to uh, Northland's community, um, February, I, I preached a message, and in that message, I gave a prophetic word that was uh, unique for me. It was one that I, I've, never, I've never really given a prophetic word that I felt was for the nation or the big C church at large, but I, I saw this picture of these two faucets that the Lord had turned on, and one was labeled power, the other was labeled pressure. And I just felt like the Lord was saying, hey, in, in this next generation, you're going to see power poured out on our nation like we've never seen before, supernatural power of the Spirit of God moving, which is incredibly exciting. And then with that, you're also going to see a, a pressure that's been put on the church like we've never experienced in our nation before. And so as we're processing this, he said, here's the key to both resisting and enduring the pressure and receiving this power that my Spirit is pouring out. And the key is intimacy. Intimacy with the Spirit of God, if you're to receive this power, and intimacy as an ecclesia and as a body and as a community, if you are going to resist this pressure to endure to the end, as the scriptures say. And, and so as I've been meditating on what to share, over the last several months that I've had the opportunity to preach, I've just been preaching keys of intimacy. And so just to catch us up, the first key that I gave us was, I feel this to be the case. If you're to have intimacy with anybody, but specifically with God, you have to deal with shame. I preached a message called Shame Off You. I think it was back in March. And the whole concept was just this reality of if you are going to have intimacy, you have to deal with shame first. We know in scripture, those who are in Christ, they're a new creation. There's no condemnation. But what I have found, even as a Jesus follower, just because I know I've been set free from shame and it's done away with, something in my mind still pushes me back at times. The renewing of my mind is still happening in the sense of going, I know that God is welcoming me with open arms, but I still feel shame for the way I act or the things that I do at times. And we have to deal with that shame. The Lord is saying, shame off of you. And so this is the first key to deal with shame. The second key to intimacy is I felt this call that we need to have a childlike heart before the Lord. The Bible says that Jesus is talking with his disciples and he says, unless you become like one of these, pointing to children, unless you're like one of these, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And what do, what do kids do? They have this, uh, d this complete dependency on their moms and dads for survival. What I have found is that being in this country, which I am so grateful for, it has given me confidence and comfort and strength in a number of ways. And the more I grow up myself, I become more dependent, which is right and good. But what can tend to happen is as we become strong as believers and as we become strong as individuals even, we, we uh, say God is our provider, but functionally we begin to look at him as well, you know, we, he is our provider, but really my retirement, my savings account, my career, these are the things that are really providing and protecting me. And to be a childlike, to have a childlike heart towards just to look at the Lord and to say, once again, I know full well, you are my daily bread. You are the one who holds all things in existence. Not me, not my strengths, not my abilities. And so we deal with shame, key number one. Number two, we have a childlike heart. Today I wanna to talk about a third key of intimacy. And I wanna preach a message called full-hearted prayers. Full-hearted prayers. I found this to be the case. Um, the way in which people talk to each other, you can hear the expectations that they have for one another and how they view one another by the words and the statements and the questions and the tone that they use. I found this to be the case even as I watch men and women who are married, how they interact with one another. It's not about them using hostile words or violent words or angry words. It's just certain phrases that get used. And as a husband talks to his wife, I go, oh, wow. He thinks she's as dumb as a brick. It's things like when I hear, 
a wife talked to her husband and he's, she's looking out the window, he's like, bless his heart, still trying to start that mower. It's like, wow, you think he's an idiot. She didn't say that, but he didn't say that. But the way in which people talk to one, are we still okay? Everybody says, oh, <laughs> these are two fictional characters. They're not actually married. They've never met each other. It's fine. Everybody's like, so let's pray for them. They're not here. It's just a story. Uh, a parable, if you will. Calm down. This, this expectation that they have for one another, it reveals. We see this with parents to their kids. We see this with kids to their parents. Give me any relationship, and I just want to watch them dialogue and how they speak to one another, and it reveals the type of relationship they have and the expectations that they put on one another. I found this to be the case. I don't need to know your denomination if you're a Jesus follower. I don't need your statements of doctrine or theology. If I can just hear you pray, it will reveal to me your relationship with the Lord and what you expect of him. What, what do your current prayers, the prayers that you've been praying, what do they reveal about your expectation on Jesus? Is it, is it when you pray, is there an expectation that you actually believe he's listening? When you pray, is there an expectation that you, you really do believe that he's going to heal? When you pray, you expect he's gonna provide. When you pray, you expect he's going to break through. Do you pray like that? I know, I know for me, I know some of you might be here kind of resisting to that reality because we hear these prayers of, hey God, if it's your will, let it be done. You know, your way is higher than my way, Lord. It, whatever you think is best. God, I know that you can heal, but even if you don't, uh, just give us comfort and peace as we deal with this loss. And if you're like me, I know some of you are going, hey, Tyler, you're not, you're not speaking to the realities of, uh, are you saying that God's will is always to heal somebody? Are you saying, look, Tyler, what do you do with the unanswered prayers? We've prayed these prayers and we still buried. We prayed these prayers and they weren't healed. We prayed these prayers and we didn't see the provision. We're still stuck. We didn't see the breakthrough. What do you do with those realities, Tyler? My question to you as we talk about prayer today is the goal before you pray to figure out the will of God once you figure out the will, then just pray that. Jesus said, unless you're like one of these little children, you'll never see the kingdom. I don't know about you, if you're, if you're a parent, do you, the questions that my daughter's asking me, right now just the one daughter, but the question that she asks of me, it doesn't seem like she has considered once about my opinion on the matter. She doesn't go, you know, Dad, I thought about this long and hard, and I know what you would say in this situation, so I'm just gonna ask you what you wanna hear. She doesn't do that. She, asks, she doesn't care about our financial circumstances. She doesn't care about the season of time. She doesn't say, well, it's my birthday, so I'm gonna ask. It's Christmas. It's about that time for me to start making a list. She just comes and asks. What, what do we do when we see that we pray and the will of God seems to manifest itself when there's breakthrough? And other times we pray and it doesn't break through. What do we do with the unanswered prayers? I think these are fine questions. I think they're above my pay grade. We'll get to those questions. Here's the question that I wanna ask first before we get to the will and the unanswered prayers. I wanna ask, how did Jesus say we ought to pray? That's all I wanna ask. Jesus, if you are a Jesus follower who's praying to God, Jesus is your master. Jesus is your Lord, which means we must obey and submit to his command and will. Jesus is your rabbi and teacher. How did your teacher teach you to pray? 
So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 11 is where I want us to begin. And I just wanna answer that question. How did Jesus tell us to pray? Luke chapter 11, if, you're, if you've been a part of Northlands for some time, you know this text well. We come to it often as we talk about prayer because it's so on the nose as we talk about teaching people to pray. Jesus is literally answering the question between verse one and 13 about how we ought to pray because that's the question at hand. Let's just read the text and let it speak for itself. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So plainly, you don't have to be theological or a theologian. This is what the text is about. What are we talking about? Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Lead us not into temptation. So stop right there. I was talking to Greg about this earlier this week as we've been looking at this text. Uh, the Hebrew and the Greek, as they look at that, there's this authoritative tone that gets used. It's, it's this, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus says, when you pray, don't just say these words, but speak as Jesus did, one with authority. When you pray, speak as somebody who has authority. Let's keep going. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship. I love this, underline it in your Bible, make a note. Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So pause. Jesus has asked the question. Jesus, teach us to pray. He says, when you pray, pray with authority and pray with a persistent pleading and calling out to God and do not stop knocking until it is answered. God in this parable is the friend who's inside and God makes his will known. I'm not getting up. My children are in bed. I've locked the door. This isn't happening. And Jesus said, you know what I know about my dad? So if you keep knocking, eventually he's gonna get up. He doesn't, he doesn't say, uh, consider the time that you ask. It's midnight, maybe come at a better hour. He doesn't say three loaves of bread, maybe just one to start. He goes, I need, he doesn't go, did you prepare better than this? The Lord helps those who help himself. It sounds like you don't have anything in your cupboard. This guy comes in. You're not prepared to receive your guests. Shame on you. I'm not answering your prayers. You're, you're just a lazy bum. Jesus sets the stage and goes, this guy could not be more unprepared and more shameless in the way that he operates. And Jesus goes, I'm just telling you as to pray, one with authority and to persistency with shameless audacity. This is the posture and attitude that you should have when you pray. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. We talk about, hey, well, Tyler, I don't think it's right theology. I, you know, I don't wanna pray wrong theology, so I'm not gonna pray uh, and, and assume God's will is always to heal. I'm going, just because you're not praying wrong theology doesn't mean it's good or right theology either. Perfect theology is Jesus, the perfect embodiment of if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and Jesus goes, pray with authority, boys, and pray with persistency and don't stop. So then Jesus says, and let me tell you the results of people who pray with authority and persistency. Verse nine. So I say to you, meaning Jesus, ask and it will 
be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For some people, no. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened to you. So Jesus has this emphatic, here's the result of somebody who prays like this. It will happen and it's for everyone. Jesus, but I don't think you realize my past experiences. I've prayed and it hasn't happened. That wasn't in Jesus's mind at this point. He was just saying, this is how you ought to pray. And this is the result of that kind of praying. Then he says, let's talk about the father's posture and attitude towards those who pray like this. Verse 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus is not just interested in that you receive an outcome. He is saying, my father will answer you with this, his Holy Spirit, a spirit of power, a spirit who is always there to comfort you, to watch over you, to give you wisdom and knowledge. Your father in heaven sees your desires and he's okay with you asking questions like a child saying, hey, this is what I want, Lord. And he also sees your needs. And somewhere in the connection between those two points, the Holy Spirit of God works in our hearts and he works in the circumstances to give what is needed for that time. Let's keep going. Here's what, here's what I'm, I'm asking at the moment before we get into the next text is do you pray like that? You've been commissioned by your master and teacher. Along with me, I've been commissioned by my master and teacher to pray like that. Do you pray like that? How you pray reveals a lot of your expectations of God. When you pray, do you pray, God, 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 what? Hi. be a cheeky kid, be like, yeah, just like ding dong ditch. Just finally, like, just knock, knock, knock until he opens. Do you pray like this? I'm speaking for myself. I, I, I struggle to pray like that. Those who are considered friends of God, again, remember what we're talking about. I'm not talking about let's pray and let's expect God to move in power. We'll get there. What I'm talking about is the key to power is intimacy. Yeah. And do you know the kind of people who had the most intimate relationship with the Lord as we look in scripture? are the people who understood, before we talk about the question of what's God's will and what do we do with our past failed experiences, before we get there, they go, here's my posture towards the Lord. Always expectant, always pleading, always persisting, always going after. You look at Enoch, you look at David, you look at Noah, you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, you look at Moses, which is what I wanna look at uh, today for just a moment. These are people, Moses literally says, he was a friend of God. He had a relationship of intimacy with God. And I go, well, then how, this is how Jesus told us to pray. How did Moses pray and operate with the Lord? So if you have your Bibles, I just wanna look at two points of context for Moses' posture towards prayer. Uh, Turn to Exodus 32. And if you don't have your Bible, it'll come up on the screen, but Exodus 32, verse nine. Are you guys still with me? Let's come over to this side of the stage intentionally because I just wanna make this a point. Uh, context, if you're, if you're not familiar with Moses' story. So Moses, uh, by the power of God, leads uh, Israel out of Egypt. They've been enslaved for 400 years. And as they're being led out, they're going to a land that God has promised to them. In the journey, right as, like, oh, they cross the Red Sea, right after they've seen miracles from God and supernatural things happening, 
all over the place. God calls Moses to come up to the mountain to speak with him about the next phase of, of leading these people. He's getting ready to get the 10 commandments. And while they're having a discussion, God looks over the shoulder of Moses and the people have given themselves over to immoral practices. And they begin to, they built a golden calf and begin to worship this idol as their God. And so this is what God, as he sees this, this is what he says to Moses. Verse nine, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make a great nation, uh, uh, then I'll make you into a great nation. Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Some translations say implored the Lord, pleaded with the Lord. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Then Moses says this to the Lord. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This point right here. Remember that. Moses is engaging with the Lord. He's an imperfect man, a murderer. He gives himself over to anger and irritation. He doesn't know all things. He doesn't hold all things into existence. And he is engaging with the one true God of the universe who holds everything into existence, knows all things, has made his will very clear to Moses about what he is going to do in this moment. And Moses goes, ah, don't do that. Who does Moses think he is? God made his will. I've heard some people say, oh, well, you know, God wasn't really going to kill Israel there. He's there engaging, he's engaging with Moses. It wasn't that God changed his will. It was that God's will was always to save the people at that time. I'm going a couple things. Number one, God could have kept his promise to Abraham because Moses was a descendant of Abraham. He could have easily killed everybody, started with Moses like he said he was going to, and he would have still fulfilled the promise. He wouldn't have broken his promise. So he'd have still been able to. Number two, the reason I know God's not bluffing here Genesis 6:11. God is talking to, Mo, uh, to Noah, another one of his uh, followers. And he says, Noah, these people are corrupt and violent. I'm putting an end to this. I'm killing everybody. Go build an ark. And Noah doesn't do what Moses says. Hey, God, relent. He goes, okay. He goes, grabs the nails and hammers. And what does God do? Wipes the whole thing out. God wasn't bluffing. God made his will abundantly clear. Moses, don't worry, I've done this before. When people get like this, there's one answer. <laughs> Moses is freaking out. He's like, oh, don't worry, I've seen this before. He wasn't bluffing. He stated, this is my will. And Moses goes, man, I would, would you consider changing your mind? Would you relent? And he relents. Now we're gonna come over here real quick and read Deuteronomy chapter three. Context. Uh, this is fast forwarding through the historical timeline. Moses is on the threshold of this promised land that God finally, pro like we're here now, we're getting ready to go in. And on the journey and on the way there, uh, they, they're running low on water and they've been provided for in their food and water many times over and the people just keep complaining anyway. 
And so Moses is getting irritated, Moses is getting frustrated, and God says, hey, just do what you did last time, speak to that rock and water's gonna come out. But Moses, in his anger, disobeys the command of God, takes his staff and just strikes the rock. Water still gushes out to provide water for the people. But God sees the disobedience and rage in Moses and goes, oh, that's not coming in the promised land. Everybody's been complaining up until this point. Moses has been the only guy who's been like, God, I'm doing exactly what you're telling me to do. And one instance like this, God goes, oh, that's not coming. And it says, Moses pleaded with God, change your mind. Let's pick up what, what he says. And now Moses is talking with the people of Israel and he's ticked with the people of Israel. He's like, Moses is like, I'm giving the reins over to Joshua. I'm not allowed to go in. I've talked to God, I've begged God. No matter how much I beg, he's not changing his mind. And so he's ticked as he's saying this. He says, at that time, I pleaded with the Lord. Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do. Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country in Lebanon. He goes, I have pleaded with God. This wasn't the first time that he asked and God said no. He goes, I've been pleading with God in this matter. Change your mind, relent. Don't, don't take this away from me. I've been working so hard at this point and now it's taken away from me. And this is what the Lord says to Moses. But because of you, Moses speaking to the people, but because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. Have you ever prayed so desperately to the Lord again and again and again and again and again and again and again that he turns around and goes, stop praying to me. Not another word on this matter. I've never prayed like that. There's this space between praying in such a way and pleading with the Lord and saying, Lord, would you change your mind? Would you relent? And he relents. And then there's this bunch of space here on the journey and there's this space of God, would you relent? He goes, I'm not gonna relent. The answer is no. And, he, and, and does that, when he hears the will of God, did that stop Moses? No, he kept pleading, God, change your mind. God, change your mind. God, change your mind. Pleading, shameless audacity. Why? Moses is not afraid of losing his friendship and intimacy with God. Yeah. When you feel like you're held hostage in the righteousness, unless I act a certain way, these people are gonna leave me. Moses and God never had that issue. Wow. They weren't talking about the relationship. They were talking about a request. And he goes, he goes, God, don't do this, let me. And he finally, God goes, you've knocked on the door, you've been seeking, the answer is no. My question to us is this space here. What do we do in that space? I've prayed prayers and the Lord's broken through and made change. I've prayed prayers and it didn't happen right away, but somewhere over here, the breakthrough came. I don't know why it wasn't answered right away, but it came. And there's other times I pray and I pray and I pray and I'm somewhere in the middle space. And it's not that the Lord gave me an emphatic answer. It's that I haven't seen the result yet and I begin to lose hope and I go, I just abandon it. Greg said this last Sunday, it's not that God is hiding himself so well that he can never be found. It's that he hides himself in plain sight and something in the wrestling in this space, we begin to stop looking we begin to stop seeking. Do I wanna see the power of God break out when we pray? Absolutely. But more than that, and the key to seeing that power is intimacy. And the only way that you find intimacy with the Lord is how you handle yourself in this space, in the wrestling. I have found this to be the case and to be true. More than giving you something or taking you somewhere, 
your heavenly father is invested in making you and me someone. And the only way you grow into someone is that you wrestle and engage with God on the matters that matter most. If they matter to you, I promise you they matter to God. If they weigh on your mind, they are deep on his heart and he's going, come and wrestle with me in this space. So when we look at this, uh, I go, when I look at Moses and when I look at Jesus and Luke, to to say, did did they know the will of the Father and their friend? I bet in many ways, very plainly, the will was made known. It wasn't about let me know the will and then let me pray according to the will. It was God's made his will known, but this is a relationship. I also have a will that he gave me, a free will. And I also have desires. And we're in a relationship. And I'm gonna tell him exactly how I feel and exactly what is going on in my heart. And I'm going to wrestle in this space with him. And I'm gonna keep pleading until he answers that call or he gives me the emphatic, no, it's not gonna happen. And Jesus is going, this is how you should pray. Moses' prayers reveals his relationship with God. And therefore, it determined his expectation. Moses did not expect God based off of his past experience. Moses based his expectations of God on the relationship that they had. What do your prayers reveal? What keeps us from praying prayers in this space? I mean, that is a genuine question. Why do we back away too soon? Why don't we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and ask and ask and ask and knock and knock and knock and knock until God gives us the emphatic, no, it's not gonna happen. I can speak to me, I can't speak to you, but there's a man that's in the scriptures in Mark 9 that when I read his passage, I know exactly why he prayed prayers that in my opinion were were not full-hearted prayers, but of a guarded heart. And so I wanna read that account. This is about a man who brings his son who's been demonically possessed for his whole life, brings his son to the disciples and to Jesus. And I want us to read this account. Mark chapter nine. I relate very much to this man as he's operated in this space that we're talking about. Mark chapter nine, verse 14. Let's just read the text for the context. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. So Jesus simply asked the question, what are you arguing with them about? And then a man from the crowd answered, this father that I've been talking about, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever uh, whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. We prayed and it didn't work. Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, speaking to his disciples, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion and he fell on the ground and he rolled around foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus' response, if you can. Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed with a repentant heart, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. 
When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. Now, the question is, is I wanna look at this father who comes to Jesus with an attitude of Jesus, have pity on us. And if you can do anything, that would be really great. And Jesus rebukes that attitude. If I can, what kind of question is that? More than what kind of question is that is I wanna ask the question, where does a question like that come from? Why do we pray like that, Father? I've prayed that prayer. God, whatever your will, your way's higher. If there's anything that you can do, do it now. We need you to come now in this moment. Lord, give me understanding. Lord, give me comfort if this doesn't go the way that we want. It's, it's already, I'm, I'm already kind of hedging my bet in the prayer. Why do we do that? Why did the Father do that? Not 15 minutes before Jesus shows up, the Father brings his son that he's had his whole life. I know a relationship with a child. You, you, there's nothing more you care about. He brings the thing that he loves the most and with hope brings him to the disciples, those who claim to be followers of Jesus and said, would you heal my son? And they pray and it doesn't happen. And so he comes to Jesus and he goes, if there's something you can do. And, and then when Jesus says, if, if, you can, any, if anything is possible for those who believe. And the man says, I believe in you. I know you can heal. But what you're asking of me is to hope again. What you're asking of me is to put my heart out there one more time. I already put my heart out there. Let me tell you about my past prayers that weren't answered. And what you're asking of me, Jesus, is to hope again, to bring it all to the table. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's what it is to follow me. See, I think we tell ourselves that it's good theology to pray prayers because we don't understand the will of God to pray prayers kind of around the will since we don't know. I think that's not good theology. I think it's safe theology. We're so afraid of getting it wrong that we dare not pray big prayers because if we pray big prayers of God, we're gonna lose big if it doesn't work out. It's comfortable theology. Our past experiences cannot set the stage for our future expectations or we'll never see the power of God break out. But more than not just seeing the power of God break out, we'll never have an intimate relationship with the Lord. He's asking for your whole heart. He's asking for full-hearted prayers. Don't ride the brake. Put the floor to the gas. Come once again, hope big, dream again big. Bring that prayer one more time. Persist. The Bible says that hope deferred, Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred, it makes the heart sick. I understand why we pray safe prayers because to pray the prayer again and to have our heart broken, hope deferred makes the heart sick. We tell ourselves that it's good theology and I think it's just comfortable theology. Better to pray small prayers and not have a broken heart than to pray big prayers and risk hoping and losing once more. I love what Pastor Levi Lusco says about our comfort zones. We tell ourselves that comfort zones, they keep us safe. Comfort zones don't keep you safe. They keep you small. And your prayers, the way in which you talk to God, 
They're not keeping you safe. They're just keeping the prayer small. C.S. Lewis had this quote. It's a little bit longer. I'm going to read it to us. It speaks about how we love deeply, and it's from his book, The Four Loves. If you've, finished, if you've followed his work, you know this quote. It's very famous. He says this, There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung out, possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that, uh, but in that casket, that safe, dark, motionless, airless, I promise you it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to risk the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and anxieties of love is hell. Lewis, man. Got a weak point? Just say Lewis. Need to make, drive it home? Just yell it out. We have a choice as a people that we can... We can follow a safe theology and make sure that we're not wrong. And in the church culture, the goal is don't be wrong. I don't want heresy and I, I stand for truth all day long, absolutely. But I want full-hearted prayers to my Lord because perfect theology told me you go to him with shameless audacity, with a tone of authority, not of disrespect, of authority, and you ask and you ask and you ask and you keep on knocking. And as I look at the scriptures, everyone who is considered a friend of God, they operated like this. And the reason I don't operate like this and why I might suspect that some of us have prayed a safer prayer is because to pray the big prayers means to put your heart out there and to hope again. So much of us wants to control our lives, but can I just say, if I'm the one who's, I, I don't trust people, I have a control issue and I wanna control my heart, I've broken my own heart before. I'm the last person I wanna trust with my heart. What we're saying is, I trust you, Lord. You're worthy of holding my heart. The goal is not just to pray prayers and to see the power of God break out. The key to seeing that power is intimacy. You're never going to have intimacy with anybody with a guarded heart. If you want an intimate walk with Jesus, full-hearted prayers. Don't hold anything back. Ask big. Jacob, he, he wrestled with God, it says, all night. He wrestled with this angel of the Lord and in the wrestling, the angel said, you need to let me go. And he said, I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me. And as the dawn came up over the mountains, the angel Lord said, the dawn's coming, now it's time that you let me go. And he goes, I'm not gonna let go until you bless me. And so the angel answers that prayer by touching his hip and his socket goes out and he has a limp for the rest of his life. He walks around with a limp and it's a mark of, I wrestled with God. He changes his name. He's no longer Jacob the deceiver, he's Israel, the one who wrestles with God. I, I understand the questions of God's will 
and the unanswered prayers. I don't have the answers. I just know if you want the answer to those questions, you need to take it to him. And you know the people that he talks to about those kind of mysteries and matters? Those who have an intimate walk with him. And do you know where you find that intimate walk? Is it's those who are willing to wrestle in this space, like Israel and Moses, Jesus, and all the people we see in the scriptures, those who wrestle with him. I wanna see the power of God break out, but more than that, I want us to become the kind of people who are known as friends of God. And the way that we become friends of God is that we're okay in this space because we know the person who's holding us in this space is more than worthy. He's not going to defer our heart. He sees your hopes and he sees your dreams and he sees the big prayers. Nicole and I, we've been in this space for four and a half years of just medical issues and what the doctor said was unexplained infertility. And I've walked with many of my friends that are, that are here through this journey and I, I shared even this context of Moses and just this wrestling and this persisting and, and trying to figure out, God, why haven't you answered this prayer for, for a child? We've been praying for uh, over three years and we've sought the treatment and all these kind of things and I'm, I'm wrestling, I have no answers and not the outcome that I want. And there was a time that I persisted and persisted and persisted and persisted, but can I just tell you, I lost hope. We had our last appointment of treatment and the doctor said, you have a 7% chance of becoming pregnant. She, the doctor said, I don't think you should do another treatment after this. I don't think it's gonna work for you. Nicole and I take a pregnancy test on Mother's Day and you know where our heart was in the journey? We told ourselves we're not gonna look at the results of the test until after the Mother's Day service because we didn't wanna ruin Mother's Day. That's where we were. I know you can, God, but take pity on us. If I can, that's where I was. I, I totally get that, Father. I know what the Bible says about healing. I know this, but the Bible, I have plenty of, of breakthrough provision testimonies in my past. But my past experience of the unanswered prayer was beginning to set my expectations and I had no expectations of God coming through. We go the entire day and we don't touch the, the, the sink until we're literally going to bed. We don't wanna flip it over and I flip over the test and it's a positive test. In this journey, we had miscarried in this journey. We had done multiple treatments in this journey. We'd done all these things and we'd seen God do some amazing things of breakthrough, but this prayer was just not being answered. Now I'm happy with the outcome, but I could not have been more confused about the way that God handled the situation. I told my wife, I said, I have never had a more intimate relationship with Jesus, but I have never been more perplexed about his will and how he operates. As I look at Moses and I look at Jesus and as I've considered my own experience, the question of, I'm not saying that there's not an answer to that question of what's God's will or what about the unanswered prayers. I'm just going, it's a question that I'm perplexed by. If we wanna wrestle that down, absolutely. Instead of wrestling down a theological idea, I'd rather be wrestling with him. I want intimacy with my king. I don't know why we pray and sometimes it doesn't happen. I just know that I wanna be known as a people who were in this space and we're not letting go of Jesus for anything. And I promise you in this space, the outcomes will work themselves out. But what we will have at the end, maybe not be the answer to the prayer, but what we will have is Jesus. Give me Jesus. Let us be this kind of people.
Now, as we, as we close out, here's what I wanna do. I just felt as I was preparing this message, even this week, I just saw, it was like the Holy Spirit was unrolling wrestling mats in this space. And he's rolling out one in front of you. And he's asking you to hope again. And I know how hard that is. I've been there. I know, I know what it means to step onto that mat one more time, to, to enter into this space. Will you? I know for some of you, I can feel it. For some of you, as I've been talking about this, about unanswered prayers and about the big prayers, there's something burning in your chest. You know exactly what prayer I'm talking about. You know exactly what prayer belongs on this space and on this mat. And I'm asking you, bring it to the mat one more time. Put it out there one more time. Some of you are here today and you've never said yes to Jesus. And that's what I want you to bring to the mat. I want you to say yes to him. Because not only is he worthy of your life, but I'm telling you, he's the only one who can take care of your life. He's the only one who can be trusted with it. And if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, I want you to say yes now. I want you to give your life to him. So if there's anybody in the room, I just want you to, to pop up your hand. I'll see it. I just wanna pray for us. Is there anybody in the room that says, Jesus, I need to start here with you. I trust you with my life. For the second group of people are those who have said yes to following Jesus. And I'm asking for you to take your, your prayer and your heart and to put it there and to once again with shameless audacity pray and pray and pray and pray and ask and ask and ask and knock and do not stop in this space. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, right now, I ask that you would enter this space. I pray that you would hold people's hands as, you, as they enter into this space with you and they begin to wrestle with you. Lord, I pray for an endurance. I pray that people would hold on to you and they would not let you go until you bless them. Because you're a good father who gives good gifts who watches over us, who loves to hear the desires of our hearts, who sees the needs that we have, who knows the daily bread elements of our lives, but you also have put dreams and purposes in our heart and it requires supernatural provision. I ask for the big prayers, God. We don't want a safe theology, we want perfect theology and perfect theology said ask big and know that I am more than able. Let us be a people of courage that ask big of you because we see you for what you are full of majesty, full of glory, full of power, and deserving of such prayers. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, Russell. Tonight.